Thank you very much. All right, so yeah, I do your best to come to this thing on Tuesday night. Um, it's this Tuesday, Scott McKnight and his, uh, his daughter, Laura Berenger. Um, if you're not familiar with Scott McKnight, he's a um, world-renowned Bible scholar. Um, he helped write the New Living Translation of the Bible. He's written over 85 books, both academic, scholarly books, and just for everybody. So, um, and I believe we have one of his books in the lobby as well. That's about, it's called The Blue Parakeet, about how to read the Bible. So he's made a big impact on our, on our church, on me personally. Um, and uh, Tuesday night, they're going to be online with us, and we're going to ask questions about how to build a healthy church culture. Um, I don't know if you've noticed all of the sort of rampant sin in megachurches lately, in the church in America in general. Um, I don't know if you've noticed sort of the ways that we have walked away from what the original intention of the church was supposed to be to try and gain influence and power and wealth and celebrity status. And uh, that's what this book is about. And that's why we're reading it together, to make sure that we can be a healthy, good church. The word tov is the Hebrew word for goodness. It's a, it's a primary attribute of, of God, and it's supposed to be a primary attribute of God's people. So, um, so last week we were talking about patience, and today we're talking about patience one more time. Um, and it's been a sort of a, it's been a, a month of sort of tuning, if you will, tuning your life. I, I, we've, I've done two funerals in the last two weeks. Buried a friend yesterday. Um, if you guys remember, I don't know how, uh, how long all of you have been here, but there was a man who was in a wheelchair who used to be here, and he used to kind of wander around in the wheelchair. He had, a, he had a brain tumor, and one of his eyes was kind of closed, and he would shout out randomly. He'd be like, hallelujah, or like, glory, just really, really loudly. And he would never settle into a spot. He'd just kind of wander around the room in his wheelchair, and everyone would high-five him. And um, about two years ago, he, uh, his brain tumor sort of, took his ability to like walk and move and so he kind of was bedridden then and he's been bedridden for two years and he died about three weeks ago and so some of the elders and myself have been taking him communion regularly and and uh amazing guy did amazing things i have to stop talking now or i'm gonna lose it again um so i learned a lot from him and one of the main things i honestly learned was patience i i, I can't imagine what it's like to live a life where for 20 years you're fighting this brain tumor, and for 20 years every single thing that you want to do has to be done by someone else. Um, that'll teach you patience. And so I was telling the people yesterday, I said, um, when people ask me if I knew, his name was Brian Essery, but we called him Cutter. Um, when people ask me if I knew him, I say, yeah, I was a student of his, man. He, he knew how to live. Um, I've been trying techniques to keep me from crying, but it's, Failing every time these days. Okay, um, so that was yesterday, and uh, it's, uh, it's been a heavy but beautiful, I think, time of uh, embracing goodness and life and people, and so I'm glad you guys are here this morning. I want to, like, greet everyone who's watching online. Um, we miss you all dearly. Um, I do want you to know, like, we, um, our, we have a certain amount of space for reservations for people to sign up and come to church, and I don't think we've been hitting that lately. Um, so if some of you who are watching online who are just kind of waiting for everything to open back up again, um, we do have some space. Uh, we're not packing anybody in here. We've made some changes recently. We added some more air purifiers because we sort of did some calculations because we want to close the windows because last week it was really hot, like really hot. Um, and I left like a, a, just a, a trail of sweat everywhere up here. Um, and so we, we closed the windows this week, you're welcome, but we put more air purifiers in and we added some to the rooms as well. And so if you have suggestions, we're going to keep going, we're going to keep doing that. Unless your suggestion is to ignore it all, in which we're not going to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're continuing our talk about patience today. Normally what we do is we go through a book of the Bible, we go through the book of Acts, we've been going through Acts for about a year and a half, um, and we're in chapter 17, uh, but stuff's been getting heavy, and uh, we're refocusing right now. So we're taking a break from that. We're talking about patience last week and this week. Um, next week, we're probably back in the book of Acts. I'm not sure if we're doing this service backwards next week or not. I'm kind of liking it right now. But I know some of you aren't because you got kids to get out the door and get to church. So some of you are late. But that's totally fine. It doesn't matter. It's not a show. It's a community. Um, okay. So let's pray, and then let's jump into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for joining us here, for meeting us here. I 
pray that right now I would, uh, I would be open to what you have to say to us, that we all would. I pray that we would, uh, well, first off, we affirm your presence. We understand that you are here. You are here because we are gathered as your body. You are here because your spirit is present. You are here um, to fill us and to guide us. You have gone before us and you've laid out the path for how we are to live in this world as a separate holy people. Um, that people can, that the world can look at and know what you are like. I pray that we would be that people. I pray that right now as I speak that you would speak through me, that I would teach effectively, that you would keep the distractions away. I pray that you would help us to be present here with each other, that we would look each other in the eye, that we would see each other, affirm the presence of God in our midst, affirm the image of God in each other, and let that be the basis from where we build our relationships. May it be nothing else. May it not be preferences or um, the ways we have sort of assimilated ourselves into the world that tend to separate us. Let all those things fall away. Let them fall apart and let us now see each other as siblings. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. All right. So I want to start off by talking about the journey sort of of life, really the journey of anything, including spirituality. But studies have shown that people who get rich very quickly tend to get poor very quickly. Um, People who win the lottery and end up with $20 million suddenly out of nowhere after they've been living in poverty their whole life tend to end up in poverty again. Why? Because there is a journey that oftentimes needs to take place for us to become healthy people to handle really anything. Um, there has to be a bit of a journey. People who are able to, to manage money well, able to make a dollar stretch farthest and do the most, the reason they're able to do that is because they have something much more valuable, which is experience in attempting to do that. The most valuable thing that they own is the journey that they have been on to bring them to the point where they understand what to do with a dollar, right? And this is anything. Um, attaining something slowly, like money or building a business or whatever, over a long period of time, experiencing all the struggles and emotions that come along with the struggle of building the thing, um, that is what makes some people able to not squander and waste what has come into their hands. Because they've experienced it before, they've walked a journey. Um, And you can give the same thing to two different people, and what will make the difference in how they handle this thing is everything that came before that leading up to this point. Where they were born, what neighborhood they lived in, how much oppression was there, what was the poverty level like? What were the messages being drilled into their head about who they are? Um, These are the things that oftentimes sort of set the path for people. And, And the journey matters immensely more than you actually think that it does. It's not the attainment of the thing. It's the journey in knowing how to handle the thing that you're trying to attain. Most of us have been formed um, by the world around us. And having been formed by the world around us instead of formed by the person and character of Christ, have no patience for the long journey, for the long haul. We want what we want now. We want it when we can get it. We want it right away. Broken things should be fixed immediately. Anything missing should be given back right now. Um, people who aren't where they should be right now, are te- they tend to be thrown out. Um, because there's, there's no time to spend walking with them in an attempt to bring them around to where they should be. And so we're quick to throw people away, to dismiss people. Because we don't have time for them. We no longer have time to wait for people to change. Um, this is how the world has formed us to be this way. And so, it's not so different with our spiritual journey. Our spiritual journey, many in the church feel frustrated about their spiritual journey. We're impatient by our spiritual growth. We want to read a book and get it in our brains now, and we want to wake up tomorrow and be a totally different person. We want to just start practicing something now and expect it to like absolutely change our lives fully and wholly right now. We don't want to accept that maturity takes time. We don't want to have patience, and that's what we're talking about today, patience. Fruit doesn't grow overnight. There's a process to growing that fruit And any plant that grows too fast 
dies even faster. And so, we often find ourselves wanting to quickly move to the end of the chapter, to the end of the sermon. We want, we don't want to hear about the background or the context. We don't want to read the commentaries. We want the application. Tell me what to do. Have you climbed the mountain? What's at the top of it? Just tell me. So I don't have to take the journey myself. Like, this is, this is the message. Um... There are at least now, like, I can count at least five different apps that you can get right now that consolidate entire books into five-minute sound bites. At the max, 15-minute sound bites, right? 350-page books. There's one I was looking at the other day. It's called Blinkist. And this guy was like, yeah. And they say, I blinked it. I blinked the. It's not going to catch on. Um, it feels weird, first off. Second, second, stop it. Like, Take the journey. Like, read the book. Spend the time. Commit to the thing that you're hoping will change you. And do it day in and day out so that it goes down into not just like your brain, but your, like, your soul so you understand it. We have, right now, people are inventing algorithms that make music and art. The art is really interesting. The music is really interesting that these algorithms are making. They're working on software that will custom create music for you in real time, okay? So that you can have what you want when you want it. It will change your mood. It will sense like your phone's in your pocket. You're walking. It's just going to adjust and make you feel whatever mood you select it will feel. And it's exactly the kind of music that you love and that you would make if you had the ability to make music. And they're doing that for you now. Even poetry is being written by algorithms, There's no reason for any of us to take the difficult journey that the dark poets, the greatest poets, have gone through. An algorithm's going to do it for you. Um, And if, if an algorithm can make art better than a human, then why not let the machine do it? Right? Why not just make them let the machine do it? If it's going to do it better than me, it costs less, it's quicker, you can just sit and do nothing instead of wasting all this time and all this energy. But if the point is, is always to produce what you want with the least amount of energy and time, then how do we instill virtue in our children? We can't. If the point is to try to get what we want when we want it, how will we grow in virtue? How will we ever bear the fruits of patience? There's a woman in our church who we went to her house for dinner and uh, she has this backyard, it's a little suburban house, and this backyard is huge. It's like a huge corner lot, and it's amazing. Like, the plants and the trees and the grass, it's just beautiful. It's like a, a mini bush gardens in their yard. And you walk around, you're like, this is incredible. How long did this take you to do this? And she said, I don't know, I've just always done it. I was like, what, is that? what does that mean? You've always done this. What does this mean? And she says, well, like, when we bought the house 20 years ago, I would walk around the backyard just feeling, like, heavy. Like, if there's so much work to do, this is a, a rat's nest out here of just all kinds of weeds, and it's a huge mess, and, and this is going to cost so much money to get a company in here, right? Because that's what you do. You don't do the work yourself. <laughs> Manual labor. Um, so you're going to hire somebody, bring them in, and they're going to do it for you, right? But no, she said, and then one day I was talking on the phone, and it was a long conversation. I was outside, and I was paced when I talked on the phone. So I was pacing, and I started just picking up pebbles and rocks and putting them in different places. I started pulling weeds and putting them in a pile. I started, and every day I would talk on the phone uh, for about five or ten minutes. And every day I would walk around my garden, and I would pick stuff, and I would move stuff, and just change something, one little piece, one little thing. And over time, here we are. So if you ask how long this took to make, it took 20 years, five minutes at a time. Who used to say about my band, we're rocking 20,000 people, 25 at a time. <laughs> I wanted to put that on a shirt and sell it. Um, look, like, something worth doing is also worth learning from and gaining virtue from. Um, are the desired results all that matter? Does it matter what it took to get there? Does it matter what you compromised along the way? The church has become a place where we seem to care so much 
about the final product. We will give up everything to achieve the end goal, whatever the end goal is that we decide is like the thing that we're after. And we will compromise our, our testimony. We'll compromise everything so we can achieve that goal. We will partner with evil. We will do anything to accomplish this thing that we want to accomplish because the end justifies the entire journey to get there. That tends to be how we talk. But does it matter what it took to get there? That's an important question to ask. Does it matter what disciplines you pick up along the way? Because the process of joining with evil to do good will give you specific personal disciplines in your life that will keep you ensnared in an evil path for a very, very long time and will become very difficult to break. If you were about to have brain surgery and you talk to your surgeon and he's like, this is going to be great, you're going to be fine and they start putting the thing on you and you're going under, right? You're breathing and you realize you're starting to fall asleep and you hear the doctor talking about how quickly he made it through medical school. It was an eight-year program. I did it in four. And you're starting to fall asleep and your eyes are getting really big and you're starting to panic because you don't want somebody that didn't have the whole journey. What did he skip along the way? What cha- he skipped some chapter, at least one chapter. Is this the chapter that they skipped reading? Like, we don't want people to take the slow path. I mean, to take the quick path, but we don't want to take the slow path. How many shortcuts did you take? Did your marriage survive that? How many French- friendships did you sacrifice along the way? Like, these are questions that I have for people, even, especially people in ministry. Are we concerned about the people that we are becoming along the way? The practice of patience teaches us the process is actually more important than the outcome. The process is more important. The kind of people we are becoming. Even if you fail, it can change your life for the better and make you more Christ-like. And the reason we're talking about patience is because it is a fruit of the Spirit. And what makes it a fruit of the Spirit is that it is an attribute of God. God is patient. And if God is patient, God's people should be patient because we are the face of God to the world. And so God's people should be patient. The root of patience is found in God's own self. God is never described in the Bible as being short-tempered, not once. Instead, he is described as long-suffering. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. The reason God is slow to anger is because God is willing to yield control to you and to me. And that is crazy to me, that God yields control to any of us. Because we do a really effective job of not even being able to govern ourselves. And God, in his infinite wisdom though, chooses to bring us into his work. God doesn't seem to be in a hurry God can fix everything in an instant. We know this. God doesn't force our hands, though. Instead, he reaches out his hand patiently and and waits for us to respond to what God is doing. God God has always been patient with the church. If you've read church history, if you understand what the last 1,700 years have been like in church history, you will begin to understand just how patient God is. It is a catastrophe, over and over and over. We have never missed an opportunity to destroy our reputation in the world. And yet, we are the people of God. And God chooses to join us here every week and to fashion us in his image a little more and a little more and a little more. Why didn't God just step in at the book of Genesis and lay out the whole plan? Because God was going to form himself a people, slowly, over a long period of time. Because God is non-coercive. Of all the ways we tend to describe God, how rarely do we describe God as non-coercive? He's not coercive. Never has been. Um, God doesn't insist on his own way. In every situation, God brings us into it and invites us forward because God is love. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5, that's what true love is. 
God is not coercive. God makes no one do anything against their will, but instead he invites them into what he is doing, into health, into goodness, into tov. Uh, indeed, we, when, we, when we claim that God is in control, we claim that God is in control, we believe this, but somehow we have to admit that God is not in, the, in control in the same way that you are in control of the things that you claim to be in control of. Because we tend to be so coercive we talk about leadership as in, that's the leader, that's the one that tells us what to do and we obey. And if we don't, they punish us. And here's all the ways that they can punish us. It's all laid out in the laws and, and the rules or the church constitutions or whatever it is that we're talking about. And when we say God is in control, we tend to think of God being in control the way that we tend to be in control. But God is not like us. God's method of, of being in control is something else altogether. It's displayed on the cross. Can you look? Like the image God has, been, has given you to think of himself. God says, when you think of me, here's what I want you to think of. A man beaten, beard ripped out, bloody, suffering, naked on a cross. That's the image God has given us to view him? Yes. Why? Because God is showing us something. And that thing that God is showing us can only be shown us through the process. No one ever believed they were a sinner by being told. They have to experience something and awaken themselves to the reality of the situation that they are in. God is not coercive. Let's look at what James says, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen. That's the hardest part. I've been teaching for here for about, I've been teaching here for 18 years, um, in classes, preaching, all kinds of stuff. Um, so I've been teaching the Bible for 18 years, and I've found that it's not always best to correct people with every little thing that they say that is misguided. When somebody describes God or describes some theology or doctrine in some way that is wrong, it's not always best to correct them in that moment. It's not. Sometimes it's best to let them keep talking and keep speaking and keep asking questions so that they can see the air of their view. And then they begin to ask questions. It's not always conducive for growth or community to just correct every little thing. If I jump in at every misstep and I stop them and I say, that's not right, it's actually this, then I might have patched a hole in the short term, but I, I might have explained how they're, they're seeing one particular thing wrong, but I haven't corrected the entire lens, the entire system through which they are operating. I haven't given them a new way to look at everything, and that's what we need. Oftentimes, we cannot get an accurate view of God from the theological tradition we were raised in because the lens isn't the right lens, and maybe it's been broken. And so you have to be patient with people, and you have to lead them slowly over time. Growth requires yielding control, oftentimes to the very people that you're trying to get to grow. It's called patience, being patient with people, not writing them off because they say something or do something, and you say, you have no future with me in my life, in my ministry, whatever. No, no, no. You, you gather with them, and you sit with them, and you ask questions, and you take them on the journey that you have been on. Growth requires yielding control. You have to be patient with people. Bring them along slowly. Allow them to continue sometimes in error until they can see that they are wrong. Forgoing short-term control over people in the service of long-term purpose. This is what God does. Forsaking short-term control over people so that he can shape them long-term as a whole people. Patience is not passivity. It never has been. It was never supposed to be. It's actually quite... An offensive strategy, patience. It has a purpose. And so human correction and God's correction are very different. I wanted to lay out the difference for you here. Human correction is heavy-handed, and it's instant. We are coercive creatures. All of nature is. But God exists outside of nature. Indeed, God created nature. And God is calling you to rise above it and to be Christ-like, not like nature. God is calling you to do everything different in a way that was modeled by Christ. So human correction tends to be heavy-handed 
an instant. But godly correction is slow and faithful. It's non-coercive, and it's full of hope. It commits to a people. It is faithful with them through difficulty, through goodness, through all of it. And so how do we cultivate patience? How do we do this? How do we become a people who, are, who stand out as patient, who are gracious, long-suffering? How do we do this? How in the midst of a world that is working every day to, to reshape us in their own image, the church in their image, how do we cultivate patience? Well, cultivate is a word that, I, that I'm using because, first off, it goes with the fruit motif. Second, um, cultivation takes time. Cultivation takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. It takes visiting something every day to grow fruit out of it. It takes pruning. It takes cutting stuff out. The ground where we are attempting to cultivate patience is a hostile environment. Our lives are a hostile environment to patience. They have been shaped by everything that you carry around, everything that you do is shaping you in the way of non-patience. Impatience, non-patience is not a word, impatience. And every day these things are shaping you. At 9.20 this morning, Apple users, you got your screen report, all right? My favorite was when that used to go off every week during worship. In, back in January BC, I'd be over here, and everybody would like start looking at their phones. I'd be like, "Oh, they're getting their screen time reports. Like, they got a notification. They have to look." Like, we are being shaped every day by the culture around us, every single day, day in and day out. It takes daily tending every day, a little bit by little bit, to grow this fruit. There's a there's a professor of theology at uh, and, and philosophy at, at Milligan College. His name was. Um, is Philip Kennison, and uh, he wrote a book back in the 90s uh, called Life on the Vine, and it's about the fruits of the Spirit. Um, and I still remember a lot of the things that he wrote in that book about how to cultivate specifically patience, and it pops up in my mind all the time, and that's why one of the reasons I kind of wanted to talk about this subject um, these last two weeks. Um, so there's three things that, uh, that Philip Kennison um, says that we can do to cultivate patience in our lives. Um, I want to work through some of those right now. The first one is remembering our story. Our story doesn't start with Jesus. It goes back way before that. We are as far away from Jesus, chronologically, as Abraham was. Like, the journey has been long. It has been very long. Um, Remembering our story. At the heart of the Christian story is a God who is patient, a God who works slowly and diligently over many generations to create a people who will, by their life together, bear witness to that God. And so sometimes it takes 40 years in the wilderness. Sometimes it takes 500 years of exile and oppression and wondering what God is doing. Random prophets wandering in feeding them little by little to teach them the thing that they have forgotten, the thing that God originally gave them that they put down and chase after something else. And the prophet wanders in from the wilderness. If God wasn't working slowly, the prophet has no role, the prophet has no job. This is what the prophet does. The prophet is, he's the gardener. They're the one tending everything. And they're entering in and they're saying the words that need to be said and they're usually killed afterwards. Their work is done. The people hate everything that they brought to them. The people don't want to grow and change. And the people get worse and worse and lower and lower and lower until they get to the very bottom and they realize everything the prophet said was true and they call out for restoration. And God does. Always. He's always there. With the hand outstretched. Not forcing them to do anything. And then inviting them back in to start over again. To turn the other cheek, if you will. Let's try again. And so there's this slow, steady hand moving through the whole thing. Why didn't Jesus just show up as a full-grown 34-year-old man and do the work? Why did Jesus spend 34 years, 30 years learning and growing in knowledge and in stature? And why is the journey even so important? that the incarnation of God present amongst us even goes through it. 
It's a part of it. It's the most part of it. It's the most part of it. The, mo- the most important part of it. I'm a professional talker. <sighs> it's been a long weekend. Um, and so it's not just remembering our collective story. We all have a story ourselves. The person that you are right now has been shaped by the experiences that you have been through. Everything that you love about yourself that is important, all the, all the important things that you have learned, wouldn't have been learned without the journey that you went on. If you were born today at the age that you are with the, the, the exact body that you now have and someone just handed you a book, here, I'm letting you skip the tutorial. Here's everything you learned in the last 40 years. You know what I mean? Like, and you're going to read it. And like, no, like, you can't get it through reading it. You have to walk it. You have to embody it. You know there are things that you now hold to, to be true, things that you believe are true, that just a few years ago you did not believe were true. You would never have accepted. But now you have changed. And your family has noticed it, and your friends have noticed it, and their brows are furrowed. They're like, you've changed. I have. I went on a journey. God was with me. I learned a lot. I'm not the same person now that I've been on the journey, and I can never be that person again. And there are things right now that you hold to be true that you did not hold before. The problem is now you are enlightened. And the most dangerous thing about enlightened people is they run around enlightening everybody else. But you can't. You end up lighting them on fire, like you burn them, like you, you ruin them, you ruin your relationship with them. The thing that you have learned over a long period of time, suddenly the journey doesn't matter because you've got the fact. <laughs> and so screw the journey, I'm going to yell at everyone that doesn't agree with me. You can do that, but you're not going to change anybody. That's not how God changed you. Why would you turn around and force a whole different mode of change on everyone else than the thing that brought you forward? And perhaps the most important thing you need to realize is that two years from now, you might actually believe more things that you don't believe now and that you refuse to accept right now. The journey will change you because God is leading the journey. This is how it works. The second thing, and he says, is, uh, approach time differently. We should approach, not approach time the same as everyone else. Last week we talked about some of these ideas of like segregating time, like splitting it all up. The, the more stuff we can squeeze into our, like, into our calendar, the better. But when we do this, people become interruptions, right? Human beings now become interruptions. This is my Netflix time. It's all I get. You're interrupting it. Like, people become interruptions. And so we handle time differently. We look at time differently Not only is viewing time as a commodity to hoard for yourself detrimental to cultivating patience, it's also detrimental to to forming community and cultivating love for your spouse, for your children, for your neighbor. We must also remember that our, our past is not deterministic of our future. We don't look at time the same. We don't look at people's past and say, well, you have all this stuff. We're Christians. This is what the world is doing. They look at everything, everything they've done in the past, and they say, well, then you have no future here because of who you were before. And I hear Christians do this, and I want to stand up and be like, do you realize that book that you read every day, the New Testament, half of it was written by a murderer who murdered entire families, men, women, and children, dragged them into the streets, killed them by hitting their heads with large rocks from town to town to town to town. And yet, when God looks at him, God is hopeful. God says, I'm not going to throw you away. I'm not going to lock you in a room and forget about you. I'm not going to put you to death. I'm going to restore you. And you are going to take the message of absolute love and goodness to the rest of the world. It's going to carry on for every generation. The future belongs to God. Everyone is redeemable. Everyone. We must have an eschatological approach to the future. Eschatology is it's a church word. It's, it's a big word. All it means is study the end times. Like We must have a view of time that is focused on the end. In other words, if you, if you have wonders about like Christian ethics, Christian morality, how are Christians supposed to live, let's just put it simply. Whatever God will bring into the future, 
the kingdom of God that we will exist in together. The reign of Jesus fully revealed in the world. Things set right, restored. All things as they should be. Whatever that looks like, the things that are there, any of those things that exist right now, I'm here for those and I support those. Any of the things that will not exist then, I'm not going to prop those things up here. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. It is, a, it is a kingdom which already exists and which will be fully one day unveiled and revealed to the whole world. It is, it is something that is coming. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus was right, that things are not what I thought they were. The future belongs to God. And the third thing that he said was that we should embody a different rhythm. And this, okay, here's an interesting thought. I'm going to talk about the Sabbath for a second. I've talked about the Sabbath a lot in the past. I think it's one of the most important things Christians can do is practice the Sabbath. The Sabbath is incredibly disruptive. If you do it right, it'll really be a problem for you. And that's what we want, okay? If you do the Sabbath right, it won't just be a problem for you. It'll be a problem for everyone around you. Because this is, it's God's day, right? It's a day that is not like other days. It's a day where we rest, where we don't, my, my staff knows not to call me, not to email me. I am not responding. I probably didn't even ring my phone. I'm not wearing an Apple Watch. I'm not wearing anything that will remind me of what time it is. I may even go around and put all the clocks face down. Time doesn't exist. What exists is rest and those that I love. That's what exists. Think about this. Here's an interesting thought. God gave his people the Sabbath in order to disadvantage them in the world on purpose. On purpose. God disadvantaged his people. The practice of the Sabbath seems so strange to everyone around Israel. We know this because they talked about it. They wrote about it. Everyone thought the Jewish people were bizarre for their Sabbath practices. Um, taking a day off from work, from top productivity, how are you going to live? How are you going to defend yourself if someone attacks you? What are you going to do? Actually, during the, during the uh, Maccabean Revolt in the, in the second century, um, second century BCE, this is, um, you can read about it in the Apocrypha. It's, it's, the, it's the books that are, if you grew up Catholic, those books are in the Catholic Bible. They're not in, in the, a lot of Protestant Bibles, but it's books that were sort of intertestamental between the Old and the New Testament. Um, the story of the Jewish people and a lot of the terrible things that happened there. Um, so there's this story of, of, the, of the Maccabean Revolt, 2nd century B.C., uh, the forces of Antiochus, Epiphanes, uh, they decided to attack the Jewish people on the Sabbath. And this is a problem. Because what are, where are our laws to us? What are they? Do we follow God because it's a pragmatic thing to do? It's not pragmatic to not defend yourself on the Saturday in a world um, of tribal warrior gods constantly doing battle with each other all over the place. Okay? In the ancient world, it is not pragmatic to pick a day and announce it to the world. We don't do anything on this day. We are the people who don't do anything. Stay here and lay around. I gotta stop. I'm just gonna, if you ask us. Um, anyways, it, and there's this debate with the leaders of the Jewish people. Do we defend ourselves? They're going to kill us. And some people were begging their leaders to say, yes, we defend ourselves. Grab your swords and shields. Let's go to battle. Others were begging them to say, no, we are the people of God and we don't live by pragmatism. We live and die by the law of God. These are the same people, same mindsets that the early church had where no matter what happened, they wouldn't pick up a sword and use it for violence. For the first three centuries of the church, the Christians never used violence for any reason, even when their church was being ransacked and they were being killed. They refused to defend themselves. Why? Because they knew the story of Jesus, they knew a character of Jesus, and they knew that this is not the way you make things right. By pouring yourselves out, sometimes even literally, your enemies will see something they have never seen before. And it will profoundly change them to the depths of their souls. 
and so you love your enemies and so you turn the other cheek. This is also why they didn't believe in capital punishments. Everyone was redeemable. And of course, after the reign of Constantine, later in the, in the early four, uh, fourth century, the church melded with the state and everything that the state believed, suddenly the church believed and it no longer mattered. We are no longer a unique people in the world who are patient with our enemies, who love our enemies, who refuse to kill under any circumstances. We are now a people who are in charge and the church can order somebody dead and the state will go kill them. And suddenly none of it has any meanings and this will continue on without a unique people in the world for century after century after century. But throughout the whole thing, there's these unique little pockets of Christians and followers of Jesus who are exercising patience, understanding that God one day will reveal himself to the world again through his body once again. But the body will not be the presence of Christ in a, in a one person. It will be the church. And so the Sabbath is a master class in patience. If you do it right, it's disruptive. Zero work, spending an entire day resting, you're going to make pancakes with the nice plates. And you're not going to do the dishes. And you're going to sit on the couch with your kids. And you're going to talk and you're going to run out of stuff to say. And you're going to start thinking, you know, I could answer some emails right now. And you're not going to do it. And it's going to be really, really hard. And what's going to happen is, leading up to the Sabbath, every week, you're going to be like, ugh, a Sabbath. And after a few months of this, you're going to be begging for the Sabbath again. It's going to make an impact in your life and your soul is going to change you. Treat your time differently. The Sabbath doesn't exist to make you successful. It doesn't exist to make you wealthy. It exists to free you from the need to be successful. That's why it exists. It exists to remind you that you, are, that you are a human being. Not a human doing, human working, human striving. You're just like you're a human, human being. You are loved exactly the way you are. There's nothing you need to accomplish today to earn the love of God. It is yours. It always has been. You are not here to get ahead. You are not here to win. And the Sabbath is meant to free you from that. And so what about... Man, I have a lot of what ifs. I wrote, I wrote like a whole list of what ifs about what the practice of patience, if it was rightly displayed as a fruit on the tree of our community, what it could do. I mean, what if we, we simply started talk, take, uh, talking differently about time in an effort to cultivate patience? What if we stopped talking about investing our time in others? Because when we use this, we're using our American imperial like, sort of money conversation. And if we're investing in something, what do we want out of that? We want a return on our investment, right? And so we get frustrated if they're not growing. And so we invest time in people, but they're not changing. They're not doing what we wanted them to do. I'm going to pull out my investments and I'm going to go somewhere else. But what if we stop investing time in people and we start devoting time to people? Devoting time to them, to spend with them. I want nothing out of this. I want you to have everything out of this. They may not ever change. They may go to their deathbed with no change. And Jesus would still every day devote time to them. And he does. And he's asking you to embody that in their life. Again, the omnipresence of God is everywhere. God is everywhere you look. But what the world needs is that omnipresence manifested. If God is already do something, doing something in a place where you are at, manifest that thing. Jump in and do it with God. People will turn and look at you and see that God is here, that God is present. They will understand a little bit more what Jesus is like. What if we attempted to view time-wasting events such as uh, uh, like red lights and stuff like that, like traffic, these, it's wasting all of our time, right? What if these things became free time to us? What if every red light was like you pondering, okay, this is free time. This is out of my control. I can't control this light. I'm gonna be present right now. What if every person that walks in 
that becomes your stopwatch. That becomes the gauge whether or not you're ready to move on or not. I mean, what if, um, what if the traffic that's keeping you from where you so desperately want to be could be embraced and, as, as a forced slowing down of your mind and your heart and your work? Philip Kennison, uh, he writes about this when he was writing this chapter. I remember he said, he said I, I, wrote, I already wrote this chapter once, and then I, I went on vacation and I came back, and it was gone. The thumb drive failed, whatever it was in the 90s, all kinds of stuff got deleted all the time. You were never safe typing anything in the 90s. Print it out. Always print it out. Um, not that the printers work. And he comes back and it's gone. And here's what he said. I wrote it down. He said, uh, he said, I hadn't realized at the time that I needed another opportunity to experience what I was writing about. But I suppose that I did. Come on. Can you imagine having a mind like that? Well, that's gone. I never realized that God wanted me to do it again. Maybe it was something that I missed. I'll do it again. Oh, I lost all my money in the stock market. I never realized God wanted me to start over and build again. Let's see what God is doing. Let's see what God is doing. What is with this disruption, this person coming in to talk to you, this illness that you had, this struggle to accomplish this thing, this failure? What if you paused and said, what is, actually, what is God actually doing? What is God doing? And try to figure that out instead of, why can't I do what I'm trying to do? Why can't I get where I'm trying to go? Why can't I finish the thing that I'm trying to build? I don't mean to be flippant, but honestly, it doesn't matter. What is God doing? I mean, this has been like the biggest lesson of my life, like the last year and a half. Watch, because it's weird, because I, this is going to sound very fleshly and carnal, right? Like, I feel like I was building something for, what, 17 years? Turns out I never was. And then you spend a whole year and a half watching it week after week just, take, just taken apart. Just piece by piece being dismantled, taken apart. People moving away, getting jobs moving, people getting mad and leaving. Just, just a whole, an amount of anxiety. Like, I, I'm, I'm in your boat with you. The amount of mental unhealth that I've experienced has been gut-wrenching. Never went to therapy before. Spent the last year in therapy. Like, at what point, though, do we stop and ask, what the heck is God doing? The church, I'm not talking about Watermark, the church will not be the same after this. Studies say that 60% of people will never go back to church again. Ever. They've tasted the Netflix of, of churchification, and they like it. They can consume it, and it's wonderful. But what is God doing? Why is God doing this? What is he trying to teach us? I worry that we'll get through this whole thing without learning what we need to learn. I worry we won't see it. What if we learned to plan our days so that people could be treated as people, not interruptions at work? What if people around us expected us that sometimes we were going to be late because someone walked in and had a conversation with us and we refused to leave that conversation? And so it's okay. What if we just learned to be patient with people? What if we lingered in that meeting a little longer? What if we lingered in that conversation, at that gathering? What if we just sat in silence a little longer while they work up the strength to say the thing that they've been wanting to say for a couple of hours now? Why don't you wait and see what God is doing? Have some patience. And so, lastly, I want you to learn to be patient in your pursuit of patience. It's a really hard thing to learn. I don't claim to have learned it. I've begun to pick some of it up, and I've begun to see it, and I like it. 
How ironic is it that we want to learn how to be patient right now? (laughs) I literally bought four books on patience last week. As if I can learn patience from four books I bought last week. It can't be done. It's not how it works. The journey is slow and difficult, and before you can learn to patience uh, with others, you probably need to learn it with yourself. So, we're going to spend some time um, in worship and song, and uh, the reason we've been doing this last is so that um, there can be sort of some space, so you can be, you can ponder the things that we've talked about, spend some time in prayer, if you need to gather with some people, pray and confess, prayer room over here if you guys want to gather, whatever you want to do. If you want to run around the room, I don't care. Like, whatever you want to do. I just want to create some space. And so uh, I have a band somewhere, and they're going to come and join us. But as they're doing that, why don't you guys stand with me, and we're going to do our collect prayer. Um, actually, we're going to do the Lord's Prayer today. Um, and when we do these, we do them nice and loud with meaning. And uh, imagine yourselves... As Israel, the people of God in the wilderness, in front of the tabernacle, and the Shekinah glory of God is there, and you say it with everything that you have. That is what's happening here. We just don't have the eyes to see it, but we can have the imagination to live in that moment. Say this with me. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Be with us now as we enter into a time of song. Um... Let us be present in it all. Speak to us, encourage us. Do your work and tell us about what you're doing. In your name, amen.